Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Today's episode is sponsored once again by Podcorn. Like many new podcasters, when we launched Locations Unknown, we had no idea if anyone would even listen. Now that we are gaining traction, we had to find sponsors for our show. For that, we use Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters like us to amazing sponsorship opportunities. Podcorn's mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control over how and when they monetize. If you are ready to start making money on your podcast, then check them out at podcorn.com. That's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com. Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who votes and doesn't take a selfie, Mike Vandebogart. <laughs> Thanks, Joe, and thank you again for everyone tuning in to Locations Unknown. Don't have a lot of updates this time. We do have two Patreon shoutouts I'd like to get to, and I apologize on this first one. I'm probably going to butcher the name, but uh, Jody uh, Sawalski and Kevin Hammond. So thank you to Jody and Kevin for being our newest patrons. Um, like Joe and I always say, we uh, every dollar that we get on Patreon helps us produce a better show for everyone listening. So th- thank you. We've got a lot of new swag on there. Um, we've got some new masks coming in soon, and we've got some winter hats just in time for the cold, cold weather. So uh, check out our Patreon page. We will start uh, launching some Patreon-only podcast episodes so stay tuned for that as well yeah and uh what's funny is i didn't know that we got those new slack users and i have to give a special shout out to kevin hammond because i play hockey with kevin and he didn't even tell me he was doing that (laughs) yeah so yeah what's up kevin yeah thank kevin in person for me then i will Um, we have a game on thursday night (laughs) yeah it's uh We've, we've really got a, a good set of patrons, and we just had a poll on there about kind of the direction of the podcast. So there's going to be a lot more Patreon-only stuff going on there, so the, the lowest amount you can donate is a dollar. So if you want to help us out a little bit, uh, head over to Patreon. Yeah, get that exclusive content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. June 9th, 2013, Mitchell Dale Stelling went for a hike in the Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado. Mitchell spent his time at the park with his wife, Deenan, and his parents. Later in the afternoon, Mitchell decided to take a solo hike to the Spruce Tree House Ruin, an easy trail less than a quarter of a mile long. This hike should have been of no consequence for Mitchell. However, He was never seen again, which kicked off a multi-year mystery surrounding the disappearance and the eventual recovery of his remains. Join us this week as we explore the disappearance and death of Mitchell Dale Stelling. Mesa Verde National Park is located in Montezuma County, Colorado. It's 371 miles southwest of Denver, which is about a little under seven hours of a drive by car. 
It was established in 1906 by Theodore Roosevelt. The park occupies 52,000 plus acres, roughly the same size as Seattle, Washington. The park protects some of the best preserved ancestral Puebloan, geez, I can't get that right, ancestral (laughs) Puebloan archaeological sites in the United States. Now, this park sees just over half a million visitors per year. And for a rough comparison, Mike, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park sees about 12.5 million, million mm-hmm. and 5.97 million visit the Grand Canyon. So not a lot of people go here. But when you look at the pictures, these are like those carved into the side of a cliff houses. Yeah. It, it looks awesome. I didn't even know this place existed. And I go to Colorado all the time. Yeah, it looks really cool. I, I've heard of the the um, the history behind this park, but I didn't know it was in Mesa Verde Park. And I didn't know the park was so small. So, um, you know, it's like you said, it's roughly 82 or 52,000 acres or 82 square miles. So it's not much bigger than Seattle. And, you know, it doesn't get that many visitors a year compared to some of the big prominent parks. But it's definitely on my list now. Yeah, it looks like a great park to go to if you don't want to run into a bunch of people but see some cool stuff. So some facts about it. Uh, There's more than 5,000 sites, including 600 cliff dwellings. It makes Mesa Verde the largest archaeological preserve in the United States. Mesa Verde is best known for the structures uh, such as Cliff Palace, thought to be the largest cliff dwelling in North America. Descendants of Mesa Verde ancestral Pueblo people spread out far and wide and include the Hopi in Arizona. Mesa Verde became a United Nations educational, scientific, and cultural organization, World Heritage Site in 1978. Mesa Verde was likely deserted by the 1300s, however. No one is quite sure why. Some researchers blame crop failures. So it could have been just climate change at the time was no longer a good site to live and grow and and prosper. Mm -hmm. The people of Mesa Verde were farmers who grew beans, corn, and squash. They supplemented their diet by gathering other edible plants, hunting deer, squirrels, rabbits, and other animals. Now, the climate of Mesa Verde National Park has a warm summer with average temps reaching around 85 degrees Fahrenheit in July and somewhat average winter with average lows in the 20s between November and March. So it's not too harsh in either direction. It's got a temperate climate in both summer and winter. The park averages pretty persistent one to two inches of precipitation each month the entire year with the peak in August at two and a quarter inches and the low in June with only about a half an inch. We're dealing with a real temperate climate, like not too much yeah. rain, not too much heat, doesn't get too cold. So if you're there in you know spring, summer, fall months, it's going to be pretty pleasant. No real big predatory animals in the area. We mentioned uh, what the Native American tribes would hunt back then. So there's nothing too dangerous that would be of consequence if you're out backpacking or hiking. The visitors encounter rugged terrain at an elevation of 7,000 to 8,500 feet. Steep cliffs, deep canyons, and narrow trails can be a danger to all visitors. Hiking trails range from easy loops to strenuous hikes up elevation. And exposure can be a concern uh, at the higher elevations or in peak seasons. So, you know, hot summer days that go up higher than normal or very cold winter days. Outside of that, I'd say your basic Colorado weather. Yeah, I mean, exposure is an issue in any park where you're getting up in elevation, so that's not unusual. With such a temperate climate there, I think, you know, it's unless you're caught in a you know bad winter storm, you're probably going to be okay. Sure. And uh, that's pretty much it for the terrain. Mike, let's learn a little bit about Mitchell Dale Stelling. Yeah, so Mitchell went missing in this park on June 9th, 2013. He was... 51 at the time of his disappearance he had kind of black grayish hair if you've seen pictures of him uh we don't we actually know quite a bit about what he was wearing he didn't have any water on him which a a big red flag for me he did have a cell phone on him which i always harp on every one of these cases i i talk about how you should always take your cell phone with you even if you don't think you'll have service he had a khaki mesa verde museum association baseball cap a brown t-shirt, tan and khaki shorts, a calf height white socks, red wing Oxford walking boots, and he also had his wallet and some cigarettes on him. So uh, one of the things we like to look at too is the weather at the time of the disappearance. 
So he went missing around a time of the year that the the lows would have been in the you know the fifties. So I I think even in what he was wearing, you could probably survive a night out there. It's sure. it's not uncommon for people to start developing a, a hypothermia in fifty degree weather, especially if they maybe they got real sweaty during the day or they you know got wet. So yeah, if there's a lot of moisture or they are wet or something like that, it can obviously increase the likelihood but yeah but you you know you can survive 50 degree weather at night but there is a chance that he you know could have had an issue with hypothermia so uh the only other thing we know about uh, his physical appearance is that he uh he seemed like a pretty fit you know 50 year old man he was an he was described as an avid outdoorsman he camped a lot um he now i did make a note of this in my research joe that it was mentioned a lot throughout the different uh, news articles I read that he was an outdoorsman and a camper, but I really didn't see anything about experience in the backcountry. So I think those are two very different things. I think you can be, you know, you love being in the outdoors. You like, you know, car camping or camping with an RV, but there, it's a much different experience to backcountry hiking. I 100% agree. There's always like two sides to these national parks. There are the, I call them the tourist attractions, where you have shorter loops or things that you're going to take a bus to the trailhead. You're going to bring maybe a bottle of water, a fanny pack. You know, Mm -hmm. you got your brand new stuff on. You never did this stuff before. You're going to be able to hike to this cool thing, take a picture, and you're going to go back to your hotel or your campsite. And then there is the deep backcountry where you are carrying your tent, your gear, your food. You enter in at a trailhead and you are not coming back for several days. And in a lot of cases, you will be out of contact with human beings. He, from what I gleaned, um, and not discounting his experience, yeah, he seemed more like the type that did the latter of those, or not the latter, the former of those trips, where he did car camping and tent camping mostly. And I would agree. And, uh, you know, the major red flag for me is not having any water, even uh, on a maybe an hour or two hike. I'm always carrying water with me, or if if I don't have a lot of water, I mean, I definitely have a filter if I know I'll be crossing water sources, so. Yes. Yeah, you, it's always water is like, water planning is one of the most critical issues <laughs> yeah. that we talk about anytime we plan a route. It's how many days or how many hours till next water source. Yeah. So uh, that's a major red flag that to me shows that maybe he didn't have the backcountry experience, even though he might have been an avid outdoorsman. So just kind of a... A little tidbit from Joe and I, who you know have spent a lot of time hiking in the backcountry. So that's about all we know about his character profile. So I'm going to jump right into the timeline, Joe. So it is June 9th, 2013, about 4.30 p.m. Mitchell tells his wife, Deanan, and his parents he's going to go for a short hike to the Spruce Treehouse Ruins. This trail is less than a quarter mile long and connects to the Petroglyph tr- uh, Point Trail, a two and a half mile loop with cliff exposures that takes off from the spruce uh, tree trail. So this sounds like a real easy hike. This is something we'd probably do in a park if we had a couple, you know, an hour or two left before we had to get back to camp or, um, you know, something like that. Something that you wouldn't really, you know, wouldn't be too hard to do quickly. Yeah. There's not a lot of, we wouldn't do a lot of planning. It'd be more like, Hey, can we get this in? Are we going to be exhausted? But yeah, I would say, because I'm more conservative when it comes to time estimates, I'd give myself an hour and a half to two hours to complete this. Yeah. And then maybe extra time if I knew I wanted to like sit down and eat lunch there when I got there, or take pictures or wander around and explore. Yeah. And I, I believe he went by himself because um, his parents were not in the condition to go hiking. And I think his wife didn't want to at the time. So that's why he went by himself. I'm never a fan of hiking alone. I think if you can hike with at least one other person, or, you know, a group of people is better, but um, he went out, out, you know, out in this short trail alone. So witnesses do claim to have seen him at some point along the trail and actually spoke to him. So we know he left about 430. We know at some point after that time, he was seen on the trail. So we have, you know, pretty good evidence to say that he actually started this hike, which is not always the case in some of these cases where, Sure. We think someone might be hiking that trail, but then we have no evidence that they actually made it to the trail. So we know he's in this park and he's started hiking this trail at 430. Um, 
According to uh, the park rangers, they said this hike should have only taken him about an hour. Like we said, the weather around the time of his disappearance was actually pretty hot for this park. It was in the 90 to 100 degree Fahrenheit range. So this does bring up an issue of dehydration, especially if he didn't have any water with him. That's definitely a that's definitely a, a red flag. Yeah, and especially at elevation, you tend to get dehydrated faster. So the terrain that he went missing in ranged between six and 8,000 feet. And there were steep canyons, so... No, the canyons, to me, are a bigger red flag than the, than the uh, altitude in that one. Yeah, so I think in that kind of temperature, I've hiked in 90 to 100 degree weather, you lose a lot of water fast. You need to have a couple liters on you, uh, you know, to stay hydrated. So just keep that in mind as we, we go through the timeline. So it is June 9th still at about 6.30 p.m. Uh, after not returning for over two hours, an extensive SAR operation commenced and lasted for two weeks. So pretty remarkable that he had only really been missing for two hours and a search and rescue operation kind of kicked off right away. Um, usually, sometimes you see people, you know, they'll be missing for several days before they're reported missing or weeks and the quicker you can get people out there looking, the better chance you have of finding the person alive. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so I, I think it's really remarkable. And, you know, credit to the Park Service and this one for getting an operate, you know, a search operation going quickly. So uh, fast forward now to 7 p.m. And phone records indicate that Mitchell tried to access his voicemail um, and it we don't know if he actually was able to access it or not, but this was the last time the cell phone tower was pinged by his phone. So this is really important, and we stress this in a lot of our episodes. You know, being able to ping the tower will give searchers kind of an idea of where he was, kind of a place to start their search. So we know at 7 p.m. at whatever location he was at, he was still alive. So um, that's an important fact. And it sounds like there were repeated attempts to call and text him uh, before and after this the cell tower was pinged, but they were met with no success. So, Okay, so they didn't connect? Yeah, they didn't connect or he didn't answer, but they tried to call him repeatedly, So, which is not uncommon when you're out in the park. I mean, you could be walking and just get a cell phone reception for like 10 seconds and then it disappears. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, okay. Now, so like we said, the search and rescue operation lasted for about two weeks. So that would have gone from June 9th to what we estimate of June 23rd. According to the Park Service, at its peak, they had over 60 searchers, two dog teams, helicopter surveillance, and rope teams. So this is pretty common in areas that are, you know, a lot of canyons. You'll have rope teams that will, you know, rappel down and check the, you know, the canyon bottoms looking for in case you fell and I think that's that's a significant number. It's not larger than some of the other cases we've had for sure. Yeah. But given the size of the loop, it's a significant number for they they had a very good narrowed down area where he could have been. Yeah, and this isn't a very big park and like like we said earlier, it's pretty it's got some pretty uh crazy terrain. So there's not a lot of areas that you could theoretically think he would be. So Sure. So the, you're right. That's a pretty large team for the area that they were searching. Uh, one interesting fact that came out of the search was canine units actually picked up um, some scent early in the search, the first couple of days, but then they lost it. So um, it's interesting that they were, you know, they they must have been kind of in the right area where he was at one point because the canine units were picking up smells. Sure. So according to Patrick uh, O'Driscoll, of the National Park Service's media service. Other than the main trails, the majority of Mesa Verde is uncharted territory that is off limits to hikers. So that's not uncommon for a park like this where they have a lot of historical um, treasures. They don't want you stomping around, you know, damaging anything. So if he had stayed on trail, there's not that many places they could have looked for him. Mm -hmm. Jesse Ferris chief ranger for the Meze Verda National Park said the area has been heavily searched with no results. In November, we had a dog team come in and search the area again for human remains, but they did not pick up any hits. When we have search and rescue exercises, we go there and continue to look, but have not found him. 
And that's something that's we we see that's very common amongst these parks is they try and do a lot of their search and rescue training in areas where people have been known to go missing and, and are not found because every now and then, um, from what I understand from talking to the PIO of Joshua Tree, they they sometimes will find things in training missions uh, years later. Yeah, and it's not uncommon for remains to get disturbed due to weather and animals, so it's not inconceivable that you searched one area, but then a few months later you may find a bone or a, an article of clothing that was moved. So yeah, that's very common in the national parks. We've we've come across this multiple times on other cases. So at the time, the authorities suspected no foul play. Um, people, you know, family and friends, their gut feeling was that he was out there somewhere and never left the park. And a lot of people thought there was no reason to think otherwise, but there had been no sightings. And up until just recently, the case was still uh, open. Chief Ranger uh, Ferris said a photo of Dale uh, and notes about his disappearance remain on his wall. On average, about five to ten people go missing in the park yearly, according to uh, Ferris. But Mitchell sticks with them. Ferris said the park extended efforts for months to find Mitchell, which included calling in close to 100 uh, people at the time of the search, scaling cliffs, and searching in areas of the park that are closed to visitors. So it's, it's a very like we said, crazy terrain and the park rangers did acknowledge that he, there is a very likely chance that he could have fallen down a cliff and it would be next to really hard, next to impossible for searchers to find him in all those different areas. He could fall. Okay. So that's, that's new, something new. I didn't think of that. If they can't physically inspect all of those different crevasses and it's so easy to fall. Yeah, that's like I've the almost fallen thing. a few times. <laughs> it, it's it's incredible. Even if you're a great hiker, you got the best shoes. It's still super dangerous. I, I'm sure you've seen it, Mike. But there's a uh, I don't want to call it a great video because of what happened, but a great example video online of a woman who was trying to videotape a waterfall. Yeah, and thankfully she survived, but she took one tiny little step to look, slipped, and fell like. 50 to 100 feet bouncing off rocks into the into the water and she was filming the whole thing you could just hear like how much damage the fall had done like she was like in pain like 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 a whimpering animal i couldn't talk yeah and it was a small fall so if you fall down these cliffs it can happen in a second like most of the time you're not going to come out of there you're not even going to be alive no and that's why i i've had a couple of close encounters and in- Hawaii. I was hiking on the island of Kauai and we were on the this cliff ledge about 500 feet up from some jagged surf and I stopped paying attention for just a split second and my right leg or my right foot came down and kind of half on the trail half off and I fell and luckily I had a hiking pole with me that kind of caught me but that's how quickly you can fall. Yeah, and that was is that that's like one of the most dangerous hikes in the world, right? Yeah, the, it's um, yeah, it's on it's on Kauai, it, and there's a seven mile marker where the trail is about maybe eight to nine inches wide. Jeez. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, that's why we always stress when you're hiking that you really want to be aware of your surroundings, be very steady with your footing. <laughs> I was very close to getting all the royalties of the show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so, so bad. All right, go on. Um, so that is kind of the timeline for the events that led up to his disappearance and kind of what park rangers were saying at the time. Now, of course, we see this in other cases. Family sometimes, you know, has their own opinions on what happened to him, how the park service handled the case. And this case was no different. Uh, you know, the the wife of Mitchell, I you know, think at the time was complaining that the park service really didn't do enough to find her husband. I would say that I would say that's not a, a slight on the park service as much as no. a grieving. lot of times. Exactly. You yeah. have family members that are grieving, panicking, mm-hmm. distressed, you know, in, in their eyes, there's quite literally nothing could be done well enough until, you know, their loved one is found. So it's, that's, that's what's hard when dealing with a, the, the context of a family member's comments, opinions, but then there, you also can't write it off either because there is a history sometimes where there is 
you know, there there is mal malfeasance or incompetence. Uh, yeah, derelict of duty on trying to uh, on these search and rescue teams. Yeah, and you got to think too with the with the National Park Service, the the search and rescue operations aren't coordinated from some headquarters in D.C. Each national park is kind of its own little world, and they handle their search and rescues. You know, Mesa Verde handles their search and rescue different than. Uh, Grand Canyon National Park and different than Glacier National Park. I mean, there's definitely standards for running search and rescue operations, but they all kind of still operate independently. So you're yeah, gonna, the terrain's different, the weather's different, the people the are experience different, is different. Yeah, you you kind of you almost would have to. So according to uh, the park, authorities shared case files with the family and kept them informed on the search activity. But Mitchell's wife uh, didn't think the Rangers did enough to search for her husband. She said, in total, Rangers spent two days searching for Mitchell before scaling back. Uh, And then a news release cited a lack of evidence as to the reason. One year after he went missing, she said, now that it's been a year, and the more I reflect on it, honestly, I'm just pissed off. Their attitude was, he was there, he was lost, and what are they supposed to do about it? So, you know, I get where she's coming from when when it's your husband, your child, your wife missing – no expense should be spared. Get an army out there to search. But when you're when you're in the, the park service, they're going to try everything they can to find the person. But if they're not finding any evidence, and like we said, this is a smaller park, I could see the search operation getting scaled back sure. faster than maybe a larger park like Glacier or Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah, if they're covering all the territory, they they're they're covering their grids properly. And they get the majority of the area, and there's no sign of life, no sign of foul play. I mean, the the, the reality is, uh, not in this case, but there there are stories of people who purposefully disappear. So, how much resources do you spend when you're not finding any signs of anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, the Park Service actually countered um, her comments, kind of with what you said. They. Uh, They said the park rangers searched for Mitchell for about three months, mostly in a scaled back mode and continued to keep his disappearance on their radar. Their searches uh, continue to cover a three to five mile radius around the trail he was last seen on. Uh, Mitchell's wife, however, wanted the search to extend out of the small area despite her husband's age. Uh, She thought he could put on more miles. So right there you see the park rangers don't think at his age that he's going to be able to cover a lot you know, more, you know, than a five mile radius, but his wife was kind of pissed that they didn't extend the search out farther. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, unfortunately this is kind of a common thing we see in these cases, you know, there's always kind of a disagreement between the family and the park service. So it, it's sad, but it's a, it's a kind of a fact of these cases. Sure. So now fast forward to 2014, uh, Mitchell's wife returned to the park three times, expecting answers, expecting to find her husband expecting some sort of closure, but each time she returned, nothing changed. She believes her husband went off the trail because of confusing signs in the park. Uh, because she was unable to walk the trail, she uh, felt uh, she fed her interest by the account of a family member who had last seen her husband on the trail. So this is an interesting comment. I've been in several parks where the trails are not marked by signs, but sometimes just marked by stacked rocks. Mm-hmm. And and if you aren't paying attention, you can literally walk right off the trail. Our, oh, very easily. Yeah. My first hike in Canyonlands, the entire hike was done on trails with, you know, the big rocks stacked in the bottom and then kind of making a little, you know, cone almost of rocks. And they go every, you know, 50 yards, 100 yards. And several times we walked right off the trail because we weren't paying attention. And you can get lost really easily if you're not, you know, familiar with that kind of trail markings. <laughs> Absolutely. So that that is believable. Maybe he wasn't experienced, you know, navigating by that kind of trail marker. So sure. um, I've got a little expert uh, excerpt from a writer slash hiker, Jody uh, uh, Peterin. She wrote this in 2013, and she was actually uh, in the park on the same day, on the same trail when he disappeared. So this is just an excerpt of what she wrote. She wrote, After an hour of walking, I suddenly heard a weary male voice call. I need some help. I thought of the missing hiker. Perhaps after visiting Spruce Treehouse, he attempted this trail and run into trouble. 
I called out several times, but got no response. I thought about going off trail to look, but figure, figured I'd become a victim number two if I tried to scramble down those ledges and cliffs. My cell phone had no signal. I hiked back down the trail as fast as I could, and when I found the chief ranger, I told him what I'd heard. Relief washed over his face as another staffer said, we thought we heard a call for help in that area yesterday. They quickly began planning to bring in dogs and more searchers. I left the ranger station and stood looking at the opposite side of the canyon where I'd heard the call and said a silent prayer. When I got back to my western Colorado home the following day, I checked the news, thinking I'd read that the hiker had been found. Instead, I learned that Mitchell was still missing and now 70 people were looking for him. As I write this, it's been almost two weeks since Mitchell vanished and the search has been scaled down. A group of us still think he's somewhere in the park, said Chief Ranger Jesse Ferris. We've all heard of planned disappearances, but it doesn't smell that way. So that's kind of an interesting little haunting tidbit about this case that this writer uh, thought she heard him yelling for help. (laughs) Um, So who knows? Maybe he was stuck on a cliff and was still alive but injured. And was yeah. trying, you know, trying to call for help, but, um, you know, just a little tidbit, you know, after he had disappeared. That was smart of her to not go look for him. Honestly, I think some people would think differently, but that is a hundred percent what you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to, you know, if anything, the best thing she could have done is maybe like left something, yep. tied to a tree or at the at next to the trail to mark the exact location. Yeah, but. Yeah, you never go off wandering looking for where the trouble occurred without, you know, professionals with you. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're a professional, you know, you, you've done a lot of repelling and you have mm-hmm. the gear with you, you could attempt it. But even then, I would say, yeah, tie a shirt around a tree and, you know, get back to the, the park ranger office and let them know. Um, okay, so fast forward to September 17th, 2020. So just recently... After seven years, park law enforcement rangers found human remains in the park. Mesa Verde National Park Superintendent Cliff Spencer said an anonymous tip the day before indicated the remains of Dale uh, were in a remote section of the park west of Durango. And I want to jump in real quick, Mike. Um, when you, whenever you hear uh, people refer to him Dale or Mitchell, he went by his middle name. And that's where, like, so when you're seeing quotes from people that say Dale, it's yeah. usually people that either knew the family or were friends with him because they refer to him as Dale, but it is the same person. Because <laughs> that, that tripped me up a little bit, too, because I was reading, I'm like, Mitchell, who's Dale? Who's this other guy? And it's like, no, they just refer to him by his middle name. I know, and I apologize to the listeners. I've been probably switching between Mitchell and Dale from time to time, so I apologize for that. I also say this is kind of interesting. Anonymous tip uh, indicated the remains of uh, Mitchell were in a remote section. So they, the anonymous tip named him? Indicated, yeah, the remains of Mitchell were in this remote section, which is odd. How would they know? Uh, yeah, that that's suspect. Yeah. So uh, the Park Service went on to say the tip did not provide an exact location, but descriptions in the tip gave search crews a good idea of where it was. So I don't know. That's a red flag to me. I think when we get into our theories, I I have a theory maybe around that. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, don't, um, don't spoil it now. Let's keep going. Yeah. So uh, Spencer said the body was found quite a distance away from where Mitchell was last seen around 4.2 miles, the area, um, the area which took crews about two hours to reach was searched in 2013. So it, it sounds like a pretty rugged area that, you know, takes a while to get to, and it was previously searched. So it, it's very strange. Um, I'll, in my theories, I'll get to this too. Okay. So Montezuma... I'm starting to, for, I'm starting to formulate some <laughs> opinions right now that I'm just going to keep to myself. Okay. <laughs> Um, so Montezuma County coroner, George Devers said he is 99% sure the remains are that of Mitchell Dale because items found at the scene, a driver's license, credit cards, and a social security card that Mitchell's information was on. So I'd say it's pretty clear cut (laughs) evidence (laughs) that it was Mitchell. Um, Devers said he is going to meet with the forensic anthropologist to examine the remains looking for any signs of trauma or any clues that can explain the circumstances surrounding his mysterious death. He also said that as of late September, foul play was not suspected, and it did not appear he was attacked by an animal. But because this is so new, 
I don't think we know the results yet from the the coroner's uh, report. It okay. may not come out for a few more months because it's only November right now. Okay. So uh, they go on to say, because the remains were just bones, Deaver said it was likely impossible to determine the cause of death unless Mitchell had obvious signs of trauma, which he did not. Just from what I saw, I'd say natural causes, causes but we'll look everything over. So it appears, Joe, that he didn't have any broken bones, which you would think if he fell off a cliff, good possibility you're going to have you know, several broken bones. Yeah, that, that kind of blows that whole thing out of the water. Yeah. So uh, interesting um, fact there. Uh, they go on to say that at the time of the discovery, it was unclear whether a DNA test was possible. They uh, go on to explain that DNA from a bone sample, or to take DNA from a bone sample, the bone must have retained some moisture. Many of the bones found at the scene were bleached, but it's not po- but it's not impossible. Sorry, but it's possible there is still some moisture in there. If a DNA test is possible, Devers w- said it would take about a year to get the results back. So oh, wow, just yeah. sitting out in the sun in the elements can just baking up at elevation, probably pretty dry. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the bones are seven years old too, theoretically, supposedly. So he goes on to finally say that Dale's remains were found by a hiker in the area that is close to the public at the bottom of a Canyon and is believed that is where he died. So we originally had, um, it was an anonymous tip, but now the coroner is saying that that was an, a hiker that was hiking in a closed area of the park. You know, I just have a lot okay, of... Okay, co- so that that makes it less suspect to me. If it's somebody that wasn't supposed to be somewhere, and they're like, crap, I got to do the right thing. I'm yeah. going to do it anonymously. Um, I would argue that maybe taking, like, the $200 fine and just, you know, like, going to him and be like, hey, I was where I wasn't supposed to be, but I found a body. Maybe yeah, you could waive the fee. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting case, and I just have questions I was thinking about maybe you were thinking the same things the first thing that jumps at me right away is you know he was found in an area that was previously searched an extensive two-week search you know 60 to 100 volunteers dog teams helicopters rope teams uh the park is relatively small though rugged did was he just was it missed or were his remains put there after the search had happened or did he fall there after the search happened? Hmm. Um, you know, how did Dale get so lost? Uh, from everything we read, this is a really quick, easy trail. Yeah, it's um, well marked, heavily well traveled. Marked. I mean, if he got lost, I could see maybe he's with you know around the trail a bit. But how did he end up four point two miles away from the trail, rugged terrain? I mean, it took searchers two hours to get to where his remains were. That means it would have taken some effort to get there. I think just... that's key. That's key. If they're if it takes them two hours to go four miles and they know the area. Yeah. And they're probably in shape or at least in shape enough to do that because they do it regularly. That's no small feat. Yeah. So that that's another puzzling aspect of this case. What caused his death? So like the the coroner said, there were no visible signs on the bones that he suffered traumatic trauma. Um, so there was no broken bones, no skull fractures. So what happened to him? How did, so how did he get down to the bottom of this Canyon without any injury? He obviously had no gear with him to repel down there. I, how does that happen? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's super gnarly. Um, Mike, no, no, you, you tell me your theory first. Cause I'm kind of just like still organizing my thoughts. So, I mean, these are maybe theory slash what pot, you know, could be a possibility. I think, um, based on the fact that I don't think he was maybe as experienced in the backcountry as maybe just, you know, an outdoorsman and he had no water with him. I think, uh, hypo or not hypothermia, um, dehydration could have played a significant factor in his disappearance. Like we said, it was 90, hundred degrees Fahrenheit out. He's at elevation, no water, you know, he's middle-aged. He's not a younger, fit guy. You know, when you start getting dehydrated, you start making poor decisions, your judgments off. He could have gotten dehydrated. Factor in, the trails are marked, not not marked with signs, but maybe 
you know, rock markers like what I saw in Canyonlands. Maybe he did uh, hike off trail accidentally and just was getting confused and kept hiking the wrong way and, you know, somehow ended up where his remains were found. I think that's one theory. Um, I think, I think foul play might play a factor here. Something happened to him on that. Why do you think foul play? I think foul play maybe just because they found him in the bottom of a Canyon without any injuries. If, if they had found his remains down there and he had broken legs and, you know, a skull fracture from the fall, I would think it was clear cut. He slipped and fell down the Canyon. But the fact that they found his remains really uninjured uh, in an area that had already been searched, I, that just makes me feel like something happened to him and then his body was dumped there at a later time. Okay. I, I mean, he, it, he, didn't, he didn't really have anything on him of value to steal. And they found most of his you know, wallet and everything with his remains. So did he get into some kind of altercation? Um, did he, I, I don't know. I, I'm just saying that because <laughs> uh, it makes no sense how his body would have gotten down there uninjured. No, I'm uh, I, I'm a I'm gonna agree with you on that one because when they started talking about and just for backstory, I I didn't do the full research on this. I I knew a little bit about it, but Mike Mike did most of the research in the episode. So when I heard about the canyons not being able to be searched entirely as like, okay, this dude definitely fell down somewhere. Mm-hmm. And obviously from the beginning, we knew they found the body. I'm like, I, but I didn't know where they found it. I was going to assume they were going to find it in some crevasse near where the lady was. And you and I would have this very easy, he fell down, got injured enough or he couldn't yell, you know, maybe he didn't break anything, but you know, knock the wind out of him, got a yeah. concussion, something like that, that might not show up in bone issues. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they were just unable to find him because he wasn't able to call it for help when they initially searched the area. And then there it is, case closed. That's what I thought going in. Yeah. It changed my whole perspective because, like you said, two separate, you know, you have that lady who wrote the article. Yeah. That basically confirmed that two separate individuals heard a male voice in the same area calling out for help. Yep. That is right off of the trail. Yeah. So let's assume that he's lost and or injured at that point. Right off the trail. Right off the trail or close enough where you could hear a voice, which is not very far. I mean, if they're screaming, yeah, but she said it was very faint. Yep. So that would assume, again, if there's an injury, maybe not a broken bone or dehydration, exposure, something, maybe he's in early onset hypothermia, but after a couple days can't really move. Yeah. That makes sense. That Mm -hmm. makes sense if they find the body there. What doesn't make sense is if he's in a compromised state, close enough to the trail where you can hear him, but then the body is found many years later, four and a half miles from the site. And it's not like, you know, in the episodes with high desert where there's flash floods where things can get moved around. This isn't a place like that. It's temperate climate. It's very rocky. Uh, Animals aren't going to carry an entire body, especially that far. So the big unknown in this case is I feel very confidently that he was still by the trail within the search time window. And for whatever reason, they couldn't find him. Yeah. How did he get four miles away from there? I know it's potentially injured. Um, If he was calling for help near the trail, you have to assume something was wrong with him. And I, you know, but what was wrong with him? Obviously he didn't have any broken bones. Maybe he hit his head or something, or maybe he just, was suffering from dehydration and was confused and was calling out for help. But any scenario that you can think of where he would call for help, how then is he able to hike four and a half miles in rugged terrain and end up in the bottom of a Canyon? It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I have a lot of questions around the person who found his remains. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's suspect. And at the same time I can see, I try and put both shoes on and hiking an area of the park where you're not supposed to be and then having to call on a tip. Mm-hmm. It, I could argue it's a good person who's doing something a little stupid, but they're good enough that they could have ignored it and been like, I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah. So like, you know what? I'm going to call an anonymous tip that I found a body. 
Um, it's more suspect, though, however, that they anonymously reported the name of the individual. Again, now hold on. <laughs> this is where I'm going to flip-flop quite a bit. Yeah. That's suspect that they knew the name. Not suspect if they saw the body and looked at the license, looked at this, like kind of searched it to figure out who it was first. Maybe they did that. And that's what I'm saying. But like, to be honest with you, I don't know if I would do that. And not that I, I, I wouldn't know touch a lot it. about. Exactly. That's what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying. I wouldn't touch it. I might take a picture. Yep. A, because I wouldn't want to. And B, because just, you know, it's this isn't science at all. But watching enough crime television episodes, the first thing they do is don't touch anything at the crime scene. Yeah, exactly. I would have, I, if I stumbled upon it, I would have tried to not disturb it as much as possible. That's what you're not supposed to do. So I probably would have done a quick little search of the area to see if there was anything else nearby. Yeah, and but I, I wouldn't would, have like dug through the personal nope, belongings. I would have taken all. a bunch of pictures and then yeah, I get you know hike right back to the ranger station. Yeah, a hundred percent. So that's where I can see, and this is again, I think that plays into the the unknowns about the story is every aspect of it has something that can go both ways. This person could be a great person who's just off trail, fine, you know, dumb decision, doing the right thing and reporting it, or they're involved somehow. Yeah. And then it's very weird of why they would report it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I still have issues with, with how fast the search operation started. If he was injured, and near the trail, you would think they would have found him. And even the dog teams were picking up scent. So, I mean, was he abducted? Um, I don't know. It's it's a crazy case. Um, I'm hoping that in the next year or two, whenever the investigation's wrapped up, now that they've found his uh, remains, uh, there's an assumption that the case will be closed and we'll be able to get that park service report, um, through the, you know, a freedom of information act request. So I think, uh, I think we'll learn more maybe once we read that report, but based on all the facts, Joe, I, I leaning towards foul play somehow, even though that, I, I don't know, you know, I'm with (laughs) you, but like, if we had like the scales of justice yeah, (laughs) and you have like foul play and innocent mistake death, and you know you have like the little the toggle at the top that's pointing right in the middle. Yeah, foul play is like one notch over to the right, like that, like that's like, and that that's as far as it goes. I, I I think that's ridiculous to say it that way. Yeah, but that's just the reality. Is I I think I think I'm kind of with you that it seems like there might be some foul play at hand, mm-hmm. but there's nothing there's nothing to prove that. This is pure conjecture, and it's because. It's just like a gut feeling that says there's something more to the story that we don't know. Yeah. But I can't point to the family, uh, the person who reported it, or the park service as to why. Yeah. It not None of it makes sense. Um, hopefully, in the next few years, we'll maybe learn more about this case and maybe even do a follow-up if we were yeah, made we'll aware of... Yeah, we get the of... DNA report back or... Yeah, it may, you know, you know it could turn out independent to... independent analysis on the bones or something. I mean, you got to assume they're his remains because all of his stuff was found there. But you, you really, I don't, you, you really don't know until the DNA results come back. It could be okay. a different. <laughs> I'm going to go full Hollywood. What about this? <laughs> what about, <laughs> I have, I haven't done this in like a few episodes. I'm going to, I'm going to spin a story that you could, that could be okay. a, a made for TV movie. What if the anonymous tipster is a murderer? Yeah. And was aware of the disappearance or whatever, or something mm-hmm. managed to, I just, I just ruined my whole thing. Never mind. I'm just thinking, here's what I'm thinking. They murdered somebody else and planted that stuff on him, but then they would have to have his stuff to begin with. Yeah. So it would turn into like some sort of park serial killer. I mean, killed you both could go, them and I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could go full, full, you know, Dexter Hollywood. Maybe there's a traveling serial killer that, murders people in different parks oh my gosh that's the pro <laughs> that's what this was that's you just pinpointed it mike why yeah. i was even thinking that way i'm yeah. watching through dexter seasons right now so because they're, com- they're coming out with well, they just talked about they're releasing more episodes so i was like all right i gotta rewatch it so now i'm like okay it's this great uh story with like all these character plots and twists it's like nah that doesn't really happen in real life yeah um i don't know but i mean i think i think you can tell i'm just grasping at straws because i really have no opinion 
Yeah, I I, I don't either. I think, um, you know, normally I would say dehydration, probably number one, you know, dehydration that led to some kind of accident. Yeah. Um, But you would assume that accident would have happened close to the trail. I Uh, feel like it's all of it. I feel like he went off trail. Then he got lost. Then he's exposed to elements. Then someone murdered him. And then someone moved the body. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's all of it. Like, yeah. that's like all of that makes sense. And that's what's weird about this case. It's very, it seems like such a simple, clear cut case, but there's so many unanswered questions and so many weird gut checks that yep. make you think differently. Yeah. So uh, that, that was all I had, Joe. Do you have anything else to add? Nope. I want to hear from uh, the listeners. I'd say thanks. Thanks for tuning in the show. We appreciate you all for listening and sharing locations unknown. Go on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and tell us what you think. This one, I really want everyone's opinion because I think nothing is out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, even I, I think I read a comment somewhere about someone thinking that like ancient Pueblan myths and things like that. Like, sure, yep, all on the table. Give give, give everything to us. Um, oh, I was just gonna say we have that episode coming up sometime in the future with that Native American expert. I, Ooh, I'll maybe yes. ask, we should ask her about the, the, the native Americans that lived in this area and see what kind of yes. myths and, uh, things like that they had might be interesting. <laughs> I would love to, yeah, I'd love to know. Cause like, why did they build the sites there? Was it just cause of the, uh, the open cliffs and maybe there's some sort of spiritual aspect to that location mm-hmm. or something that, that plays into those, those myths or legends that, that might shed some light onto what happened here. Yeah. So um, also I'll, I'll close out with our normal close. Uh, go check out the Patreon. We're going to start releasing Patreon only episodes. We're going to do one right after this on a recent, uh, missing person who was found where there's a lot of questions and so highly suspect things. So it's not going to follow our normal format. It's going to be very special. Uh, the only way to listen to it will be to subscribe to our Patreon account. Uh, you can check that out. We have that on Facebook if they need to search it, right? What is it like Patreon backslash locations unknown? You can just type like in, uh, go to Google. If you don't want to go to any one of our social media platforms, just type in locations unknown Patreon. It'll be the first link. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Do that. Do that and sign up. Every yes. every level will have access to the shows. Uh, but as, as Mike has stated in many episodes, we'll be sending out swag uh, for different levels and other things that are very level specific. Everybody who everybody who signs up, even at the one dollar level, after three months, you get a free bumper sticker. Well, there you go. And and <laughs> as you saw that picture of uh, one of our listeners sent of their Jeep, that that accident, um, they told me it was from like not putting it in gear and park or something like that. It rolled backwards. The only portion of the window that survived was the one where the sticker was. So there you go. It'll you, s- you get in, yeah, you get enough of our stickers, you'll save your windows. <laughs> and. <laughs> So outside of that, we we just really appreciate all of you, our loyal listeners, our sponsors that help keep the show going. And remember when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or taking a walk to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you next time. Thank you.